It causes enormous strain on our relationship, and we're not romantically linked. <clears throat> And welcome to this episode of Tripology. I'm Alan, and I'm here with the ever-lavish Adam. Oh, thanks. That's a lovely adjective to describe me. Where the hell are you? There we go. I'm good. I'm currently in Belfast visiting with a friend. And I was just thinking, you know, we both come from the UK. I'm here in Belfast. We've both lived in Canada and we've been all over the world. I was thinking a little bit about tipping culture, Adam. You know, the act of applying a gratuity to a good or service and then providing that to staff at said place. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I mean, it's a deep topic and one that needs discussing because it's actually been a hot topic over recent years. I mean, it's something that we don't necessarily see that much of or certainly not to the same extent as we do in North America. And now that we've both lived in the UK and Europe and North America, it's probably quite a good time to discuss the difference between the two. I would say so, yeah. I mean, people who listen to this podcast and a good deal of our listeners are from you know North America they grew up very used to this tipping culture but it's absolutely non-existent in the UK when we were growing up I know it has come into fashion a little bit more now but you know I can't remember ever thinking about tips when I was first going to bars and restaurants and that sort of thing. So it's new to us from that perspective but it's obviously something we've encountered whilst traveling. Yeah I think it's important to start off by saying, that tips originated, I think, from people working in service jobs, usually hospitality or maybe even like a valet, you know, people who park cars and things. But because the individual is being paid less than the minimum wage, often they will receive tips in order to make up their hourly rate or salary. And that's where that cultural difference comes from, because, of course, in the UK, there has always in our lifetime been a minimum wage where, you know, you can't work for any less than that. Mm. It's my understanding that sometimes people work primarily for tips in other countries. So a tipping culture develops where tips are an expected part of the service charge. Yeah, and it's now it's now got to a certain stage. I mean, we are going to dive into this in more detail, but it's got to a certain stage, in my opinion, and this is in Canada. I don't know what the situation is like in the US by comparison, but I think it's fairly similar. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick my neck out here, mate, and say that Tipping is so ubiquitous and so common and so accepted now that it might as well be a tax. Well, this is it, yeah. And I think that some people have tipping anxiety when going to new places as well. Is tipping ubiquitous in this place? Will this tax apply to the service I receive in this country? What should I tip in this continent? People don't want to offend. People don't want to be detrimental to the livelihoods of people who are doing a good job. It's a real complicated issue. Why don't we, as two tropologists, try to illuminate the listeners with some of the things that we've encountered whilst travelling with regards to tipping culture? Yeah, no, I'd love to, because it is such an interesting dynamic. Like you say, there's a tipping anxiety. And people listening to this will know that when you go into a coffee shop or a restaurant, or now we're even seeing it in retail stores, you'll be confronted by the card machine when paying. And it will have an option as to how how much you want to tip as a percentage, right? And usually, the cheapest 
tip option is about 15%, which is incredible. But then you've got this other thing that compounds the issue, whereby you're being served by people who are, in some cases, I would say that they're, how can I put this without, (laughs) it's such a sensitive topic, but basically their enthusiasm is insincere. You constantly worry whether someone is being so nice and almost over polite and over attentive in order to achieve bigger tips. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's like a tiered system where it's like service was bad, good, great. And there's like three different tipping amounts based on how you feel. I've encountered that in some countries. I've encountered some situations where because I was clearly a foreigner, they expected a tip, whereas my local friends weren't expected to tip. Oh, right. I've encountered other situations where an amazing free service was provided, but with the expectation of a tip at the end. And I've encountered some situations where people have been offended at the amount I've tipped because out of ignorance, I've not tipped what they felt was like the proper amount. And I've encountered other situations where I've probably tipped a lot when it wasn't expected. So it's definitely something that we occasionally fumble over as travellers. And it's something that you can educate yourself about in advance. Ask a local person, you know, is tipping expected here? Are the staff fairly paid? That sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, Japan is the extreme example, isn't it? Because that's where I've experienced the best service. Without a doubt, the best service I've ever experienced uh, whilst abroad is in Japan. And there, there is no tipping culture. I'm led to believe that in Japan, tipping is actually considered a little bit offensive. It can be because they're doing their job to the best of their ability. And why would anyone expect otherwise? Right. Almost like you tipping them suggests that they kind of need the extra help or something. Yeah, I'm not too, I'm not too sure how it's viewed, but I think it can be seen as an insult. And, you know, it's that is a very strong sort of cultural difference between certainly people from the UK, but absolutely the North Americans. And then also... The, um, the Japanese culture and lack of tipping culture. But this is a really good moment to begin a story which I think highlights uh, the tipping culture quite well. I'd love to hear it. This all started in Vietnam. Now, it's an incredibly long story, so I'm going to distill it down to this one tipping section uh, for you. But I do want to paint the picture in order to give this, this story kind of the... Um, the magnitude I guess it deserves. But I had been in a motorbike accident in the mountains close to Sapa. So we're right up in the north, right? And on this journey, I was heading towards a homestay. So I was due to stay with a small family in a tribe that live up in the mountains. You know, they bamboo farm and they've got a few animals and stuff. It's um, a pretty, pretty small village. But I was driving around the mountains, had a motorbike accident. And long story short, I ended up staying with the family, but almost hiding from the person I had a motorbike accident with. So I will have to tell you a few details just to give you an idea of what happened. But basically, I refused to pay for the person's motorbike I had a crash with because it was their fault that we had an accident. Okay. They were a local village boy and we we had an accident. He was driving a scooter and I was driving a motorbike and he came onto my side of the road around a mountain. <laughs> And my leg, my leg snapped off part of his scooter, okay? It was absolutely his fault. We even had to go to a local hostel where there was a guy who spoke Vietnamese and English who was translating for us, okay? And he said to me, well, from what the guy, what the young guy's saying, it sounds like it was his fault. 
And I said, oh, so he's admitted it was his fault then. And he said, yeah, but unfortunately... Did you already know it was his fault? Absolutely. He came onto my side of the road as he was driving around a corner. Okay, right. So local village boy is coming onto your side of the road. You're travelling forward in perpetual motion and your leg snaps into his scooter and cracks a bit of it. Is that the sort of the abridged version? That's it. So I guess (laughs) now instead of telling the distilled version, I'm going to tell you a very quick, longer version. But I was driving around a corner, around a mountain. He overtook someone on his side of the road coming in the other direction. Oh, okay. And then crashed into me, right? So Local village boy was trying to get where he was going a little bit too quick. And karma has instantly sought some form of retribution in the form of an injured limb on your part and a cracked scooter on his. Well, this is the thing. We went after a bit of a melee in the middle of the road. <laughs> we ended up going back to Sapa. So this is now in the opposite direction to where I was going. Back to Sapa, we managed to get this lovely gentleman who was working for a hostel, Vietnamese guy, who could speak Vietnamese, obviously, and very good English. So he was translating between both parties. And he said, look, the way it's going to work is this. Even though it's his fault, and he's admitted it was his fault, you're going to have to pay for his scooter. And I said, well, out of principle, I'm absolutely not doing that. Not only am I not like an incredibly wealthy traveller, but also it tangibly wasn't something that I could avoid on accounts of he crashed into me. Yeah, so so the guy said to me quite openly, look, you've got to understand that he's going back to his family with a broken scooter and no money to fix it. Yeah. And unfortunately for him, that's going to end incredibly badly. Yeah. So either you, you've got you, you've just got to give him the money in this situation and that's the way that this problem's going to go away. For him? Well, see, this is the thing, right? This is where it gets interesting. I stood my ground and I said, absolutely not, out of principle. You know, this kid needs to learn a lesson and whatever sort of other ridiculous ideas were going through my head. Because in hindsight, I should have just, I don't know how much, if even if $100, like 100 US, just to, right. if I had known what would have transpired, right? Okay. So anyway, there, there I am outside the hostel. I said, look, I've arranged to be with this woman and her family tonight. I've really got to get going. The whole time, this kid and all of his mates that have now shown up, they're taking photographs of me on their phone, they're taking photographs of my motorbike, etc. I jumped in a taxi because my motorbike was so heavily damaged that I couldn't ride it. And then we went off to, um, to, this, uh, to this homestay. So again, it's about 20 kilometres outside of Sapa in the mountains. Now, there were two ladies that came to stay at the homestay. I was due to stay there for about four or five days but they were only staying there for three days. So as you can imagine, with homestays up in the Sapper Mountains, you do a bit of hiking, you sort of do some, uh, you know, maybe help the family out, do some farming, and then all eat together and what have you. After three days, the two girls that came to stay with us, they were due to leave. So we walked them down to the bottom of the village for them to get a cab to go back to Sapper to then catch their bus onwards. And whilst we were at the bottom of the village, there was a lady down there who was talking to the woman I was staying with. And all of a sudden I saw the expression on the woman I was staying with's face change. And she said to me, we need to get you back to the house. And I said, oh, why is that? And she said, the lady has just told me that there is a group of villagers who are going around all the villages in the mountains trying to find you. Oh my God. Basically demanding money. Crazy. I know, it was really scary. And look, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it was incredibly... um, 
nerve-wracking and I was made to feel like this was a very serious, serious thing that was happening. But you felt like he sort of conspired with a group of villainous men to sort of take you down in the night time. Oh yeah, I was told quite explicitly that I was in trouble. So there was a, there was a group of men that were effectively, you know, hunting me down, trying to, trying to find out where I was and stuff. So she said, look, we need to get you back to the house. I then remained in the house for four days. I didn't leave. She hid me. And, you know, just to put this into perspective... Oh, my God. It's obviously a much more complicated story than I'm letting on, but she kept me in her house with her three young boys and her husband. She didn't need to do any of that. And I, I was putting... I really want to get this across without going into too much detail, but I, I was in danger. Right, yeah. Definitely, right. And putting them in danger. You were in danger and you were also fearful. And I stayed in their place for four days. Yeah. They fed me, watered me, made sure that I was safe, kept reminding me that, you know, I, I absolutely can't leave, but I am safe. In the meantime, there was this group that were trying to find out where I was. And apparently they were going to the local mechanic and motorbike shops in Sapper with a photograph of me and my motorbike telling the shops, if this guy comes in here with this motorbike, you've got to let us know. Hold on, but this guy knows that he was at fault. But that's not the point, Alan. But presumably he's gone home and he's in such trouble with his family and stuff like that, that he's trying to just leverage this situation as like, I'm, I seek revenge. I think that's what it was, you know, it was... Um, and you were just wrong place, wrong time, wrong guy. It was incredibly unfortunate. And, you know, as I said at the beginning of the story, I should have just paid the money and it all would have gone away. Mm -hmm. But... If you imagine a group of villagers with sort of sticks and farming implements and all this kind of thing, it sounds ridiculous, but that's exactly what it was like, from what I'm told. Like the mob coming for Frankenstein. <laughs> it was like very much a Mary Shelley novel, but with motorbikes instead of scientists, and you instead of Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, I, it, was, um, it was awful. It was incredibly traumatic, and I was very, very scared. But what had happened in the meantime, and this is exceptional is that the family I was staying with, they had a friend who repaired motorbikes in the town of Sapper. Yeah. They had agreed, and I had to liaise with the hostel, which is where my motorbike was being kept, for the mechanic to come and collect my motorbike covertly, take it back to his shop, <laughs> work on it and fix it to the point where it was a rideable level. And then f It wasn't rideable, your motorbike. It had been written off. No, no, the, the bottom peg, it not written off, but it just needed work doing. Right. The bottom peg had been smashed off and there was scuffs all over it. One of the handlebars had sort of bent and stuff. Because there was, a, like I said, there was a whole melee in the middle of the road, mate. Bikes got pushed over. He tried to throw my keys off the side of the mountain. It was it was awful. Right. And this, me this mechanic you trusted enough to do the job without grassing on you. But he was a friend of the family I was staying with. Right. They organised it for me. Right, yeah. After hiding me, right, and then... At about 11 o'clock at night one evening, they said, right, we're going to send you on your way. So at 11 o'clock at night, I jumped on the back of their scooter. They drove me down to Sapa, 20 kilometres in the night. We picked up my motorbike and they said, just ride out here as fast as you can. Oh, my God. It's all very dramatic. It was the scariest, one of the scariest moments of my life because I was so out of sorts and out of my depth and out of any sort of um you know there was nothing i'd experienced that i could compare it to i just didn't know what the rules were right how old do you reckon this guy was oh 
18. I'd like to introduce a new item on Tropology Podcast, and it's called, <laughs> if you're the guy that crashed into Adam's bike in Vietnam, contact the show, tropologypodcast at gmail.com. I would like to interview him and get his side of the story. I imagine he's going to be like, I was 18, man. I was scared, dude. <laughs> you know, I've, I want him to drink and repent for his actions because he put you in an awful situation there, didn't he? He did. He did. And the family as well. So this is where it comes full circle because the listener's probably thinking, well, how does this relate to tipping culture? That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking at the top of this episode, we'd told the listener, we made a pledge that you, the Tropology audience, would hear a show about what to do in the event of a tipping crisis. And we've talked not, but about you being holed up in that house, afeard of a motorcycle gang. Link it all back. That's it. I'm about to link it. So in order to say thank you for all of their work, right, all of their kindness and generosity and putting their own family at risk, I offered them an enormous amount of money. Okay. $350 US. Oh, which in Dong, they were multi-millionaires. <laughs> you Vietnamese Dong, my favourite currency. But you have to imagine, right, this is a very small village up in the mountains. They're of, they would even say themselves, they're village people. They're of Mongolian descent, right? They don't consider themselves Vietnamese. They live in a farming community where they farm bamboo. They've got a few animals and they essentially live in a wooden shack. Right. I've just offered them $350 US, not only to pay for my stay there, which was all sort of agreed upon, right? Because you pay a certain amount a day and they feed you and you do hiking and all that kind of stuff. I'd already settled that bill. But then to give them another another $350 US on top of that, just as a thank you and to say, you know, you've looked after me, you've put your own family at risk. This is for you. I hope it helps. And they would not accept a penny. That's so incredible. Just to comprehend how much that $350 US actually is. We're talking about people who often live hand to mouth where the creation of produce like bamboo or whatever they're making is the manifesting of food for that day, for that week. So you can imagine that for the sum of money that you're offering, you're actually offering like stress-free, we can feed our family type living. Potentially. And, you know, not only had they sort of looked after me, housed me, had my motorbike fixed, I, I was also sort of staying there and eating there and being well looked after by them. And then to not accept any money in return. Th this is the thing that it made me realise, Alan, and this is where it comes, comes around full circle, is that the only way I knew how to thank them was to offer them money. Mm. And it blew my mind because she was saying to me, just the fact that you're safe makes me happy. That's emotional, man. I couldn't, I just couldn't compute it. I was like, but how, why aren't you taking the money? That's how we say thank you in Western culture. Right. If we're to appreciate someone's work or generosity, kindness, the only thing we know how to do the only way we know how to say thank you is to give money. And for her, you would expect that that would be you know, sort of a life-changing amount of money to a certain extent. She had three young boys that were going through school. Or, and I'm getting a bit sort of shaken up now talking about it because it was a, a real moment of reckoning for me at how, how different sort of culturally we are. Because even when I pose myself the question, well, how, what else can you do for this family that doesn't involve giving them a lot of money? And I just had nothing. 
It's amazing that she regarded it in that fashion. Like she saw her relationship with helping you as an emotional transaction of one human being to another. And I'm sure you did as well. But once that went through your Western ideology, which is a product of your upbringing, it came out as this financial burden, which totally didn't compute with the way that she was seeing that whole relationship. It's really an interesting thing, isn't it? That you offered a gratuity to show your gratitude for the thing that she did, but she didn't see the thing she did as a service. She saw the thing she did as an act of human kindness. It's fascinating. Yeah, it was It was really strange. Even digesting that for weeks afterwards, thinking, surely she can't have just been doing it out of the kindness of her own heart. It was one of those moments where it was really difficult to accept. She was such a sweet woman and, you know, we've exchanged a few messages since then. But, yeah, there's real kind of, um, you know, two cultures colliding almost. And I was pretty upset about my my lack of understanding, I suppose, to a certain extent, because it really it switched up everything I, I think now. And when it comes to the tipping culture in North America... I, I would like to think that there are people out there who would prefer for me to shake their hand and say, that was amazing. We really enjoyed our evening and you made us feel very welcome. That was a wonderful experience. As opposed to me giving them a $10 tip and not even looking them in the eye. Okay, so I actually want to offer a sort of shadow version of your story. And this is when I arrived in New Zealand. I actually think this story will help provide a little bit more perspective on kind of the two halves of this debate. And then we'll have to link it back to tipping as we all understand tipping to be. But when I arrived in New Zealand, I had no money because of the mugging that took place in Johannesburg, which we will talk about in a future episode. And Mm -hmm. I was sleeping on a friend's sofa And when I finally got a job, I was moving from my friend's sofa to like my first apartment. And I was explaining that I've still not got my first paycheck yet, but I've been working like hard to get it. And this represents this big move for me. And I was in such a bad way financially, but I'd managed to get a job and it was all going right. I was explaining this to the taxi driver who was driving me from my friend's sofa to my new accommodation. And I had all my stuff with me and I was explaining the whole story. I was explaining the mugging. I was explaining arriving New Zealand in complete disarray, how my friend took me in. And I was just excited, you know. Now I had a job. Now I was going to have my new place. And she said to me, well, look, I'm not going to charge you for this taxi ride. And, you know, I'm a a religious person. I believe in God. I want to do this for you. Here's $20. Like, not only am I not going to charge you for this, but I want to give you this as a little gift. Oh, wow. And I was emotional about it. And I couldn't believe that someone could be that kind. And I didn't accept the money. I accepted the free ride, but the but the money seemed like this additional thing that was like, I was doing okay now. And it, it was a beautiful gesture, but I couldn't accept it. And I think that that maybe comes from that same place of, money seems like an overly transactional act of kindness. And I understood that she was reaching out to me in this beautiful way. And I'll remember her face forever because of that. 
and I was very touched that she offered that free ride and, and, and very touched that she listened to my story and that it affected her in enough of a way to want to reach out to me. Yeah. But ultimately, I think money is so embedded in this cultural thing of like money, money paid for goods and services that I couldn't accept that. And that's sort of a different realm and a different version of the story you told about trying to give money to that woman in Vietnam. But I think it maybe comes from the same place. It's like human experience versus transactional reward. Yeah, I mean, the society that we grow up in, that we grew up in, no one does anything for free. Right. So, you know, there was a certain amount of shame I felt. And I ha- that, that is honestly, out of all the things that have happened to me whilst I've been on the road, that is a moment that has stuck with me because I was completely dumbfounded. Even to this day, I, I remember, I'm just thinking now, like... But you would have taken the money. <laughs> you know, there's still this little voice in my head that's thinking, how did they not accept yeah. the money? Yeah, yeah. It was so heartwarming, so moving. And um, and you'd have pushed as well. You'd have been like, take the money, please take the money. Yeah, of course, of course. It's, it's, that's almost like a, a thank you from me. But it was compounded by the fact that I didn't know how else to say thank you apart from give money. Yeah. And she was like, don't worry about it. Just the fact that you're safe is all I wanted. That's amazing, man. I think a lot of people will be touched by that story. And I hope that, you know, because a lot of people listening to this podcast, they're about to set off on adventures into the world. Maybe that's a bit of a lesson to them to be open to acts of human kindness and to provide acts of human kindness wherever possible. Yes. A lot of travellers carry with them into the world these Western ideas of kindness and of money and of all those things. But you've got to be open to new ways of thinking on the road. And I think the golden rule, if there were 10 commandments of travel, number one would be be kind wherever possible. Be kind and be open to receiving acts of kindness as well. Perhaps that is part of the kindness. Let's bring it back to tipping in the way that everyone understands it just for a moment. So we've actually offered some advice. I think the number one piece of advice we can give to people who are having tipping anxiety is do a little bit of research prior to arriving at a destination. You know, what is the tipping culture here? And then as a general rule of thumb, if you're in a panic, you don't have internet connection, you didn't look it up beforehand and you're there... 10% is a frugal tip, 20% is quite a generous tip, and anything above that, crikey, you're an incredibly lavish human being. What do you think about that as a general golden rule? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think that 10% in Europe is probably becoming more and more common. 15% is almost insulting in some parts of Canada. And then anything more than that, I think, is becoming the new norm. Coming from someone who is experienced in the service industry, Adam's guide to tipology. (laughs) There we go. I tell you what, everyone, all this talk of finance, money, golden coins and different amounts of finance written on notes of all various sizes has made me feel disconnected from the spiritual world. And the only way I know how to reconnect myself, plug back in to the true consciousness of the mind is to have a brief meditation break. And just like that, not only my conscious mind, but Adam's as well, flying across the room and back in through our third eyes and into our minds. There we go. 
Here we are after that wonderful meditation break. I feel rested and relaxed. And Adam, if you wouldn't mind, I would like to invite you to do something with me. Go on. You've said it before and I've often regretted it, but let's go with it anyway. You've regretted doing something that I've asked you to do? No, I mean, no, that's not fair to say, but I should always um, ask you more details before just going in blind is what I'm saying. That's fair enough. Well, I can absolutely promise you that this <laughs> won't be a regret of yours because what I'm going to ask you to do <laughs> is imagine in your mind a beautiful beach and me and you are there walking across the beach and we see erected in front of us a wonderful beachside hostel. We burst through the front door doors, run right through the reception, go up the stairs, into a dorm room, through the dorm room, into a common area, and there we are. We're just <laughs> chilling, kicking back in a common area. It's the hostile common room, and it's the section of the podcast where we invite listeners to email us at tropologypodcast at gmail.com or send us a message at tropologypodcast on Instagram. They can go into the fictitious hostile common room and ask us any kind of question that they want, such as Adam, what's the worst bed that you've ever slept on? Alan, do you prefer a hard mattress or a soft mattress? Adam, top bunk or bottom bunk? These are the sort of questions that you might ask when you enter in to the hostel common room. Adam, has anyone sent us a message for today's hostel common room? Yes, we've had a little message from, from a lovely gentleman. And I think... I think... He touches on a very, very important topic and one that I think we both have quite a bit of experience in. Oh, God. So I'll, I'll sort of paraphrase the message and then we'll, we'll have a little chat about it, if that's all right. It's all right with me, mate. I feel ready. I feel geared up. And I love it when tropologists from all around the world take to their phones and their laptops to send us wonderful questions. So I'm ready. All right, wicked. So the topic is romance. It's about sort of travel romance and meeting people whilst you're on the road and ultimately sort of having a fling, let's say, or falling in love. Okay. <laughs> now you're interested. I'm ready. <laughs> Alan's bread and butter. <laughs> so just to sort of generalise here, the gentleman is from a European country and he met a lady from another European country whilst they were over in Asia. They were backpacking around Asia they met each other, dare I say it may have been love at first sight, and it developed into a fling. So much so that they actually changed their plans and made sure they were aligned so they could then meet up at a different country in Asia and spend some time together. Now, I'm sure that we're speaking to a lot of people when we talk about this topic. This will resonate with a lot of people. The problem is that when their trip ended and they returned to their respective European countries, unfortunately... Through no fault of their own, they did try to keep things going, but it just did not work out. And one wasn't willing to sacrifice to the other one's plans and what have you. So, you know, even though it was genuine, even though it was real and there was something very special there, unfortunately, after a number of weeks, the relationship died. Oh, anonymous tropology listener, you're a kindred spirit with me sending in this email. I think the juxtaposition of a life of travel with a desire for love these are two very difficult things to parse out so i think that the the story is quite interesting because of what it alludes to and for me i have a great deal of experience in sort of travel romances that have actually continued oh boastful 
Not boasting, no, because it ended in tears. But anyway, that's a different... I've already told you one sad story on this episode. We're not going to go into another one. You fell in love with that boy on the motorcycle, didn't you? (laughs) I said, I'm not paying for his motorcycle. We're in love. He was going around that village going, and if any mechanics see this guy, just please tell him I love him. It was misinterpreted all along. Excuse me. So what it alludes to for me is that... Are there certain situations when romance is purely and only solely contextual? Can a relationship only exist in a certain context? Yeah, okay. Do you want me to just go ahead with my experience-driven advice on this and just tell you the full story kind of thing? Of you? Well, I have a very, very specific example of this in mind that I think is pertinent to this listener. And it requires a little bit of backstory, but I think it kind of represents my comprehensive view on this issue. Yeah. So I've got a story from my own personal life, and I'll give you the very abbreviated version of that story because it is very topical. But yeah, please go ahead. Well, I think the most pertinent example of this from my life is that there's been several times where I've fallen in love and tried to make those relationships work over long distance. And I have to say, it is very difficult to keep that afloat. If the listener wants advice on long-distance relationships, over the last eight years, I've come up with various strategies and ways of keeping love alive whilst being thousands of miles apart. And there's people that, to this day, represent some of the people I'm closest with in the world who I was in relationships with and travel, tore us apart, and I've ended up having real spiritual and emotional connections with them that have lasted my, you know, and will last my whole lifetime. But the most pertinent example of a time where I've established a relationship that existed in its time and in its place and didn't go beyond that, but is still remembered really fondly, is that when I was in Australia for a year, I fell in love with someone and invited them to come and travel with me in Africa. And they came to Africa and we travelled together And it was an amazing, amazing time. We were very much in love. But we knew that when our time in Africa concluded, she would go and live somewhere that I wasn't going to go to live. And I wasn't prepared to go and live. And she wasn't prepared to come and live where I wanted to live. I was going to fly to New Zealand and she was going to fly to the UK. We were going to be on opposite ends of the world. We weren't going to try and continue a relationship. And all of that was sad, but okay. And there's these videos of of us hanging out in our last days where we're very much aware that the end is coming. But we love each other and we loved each other unconditionally and we were experiencing Africa together. And I remember that relationship so, so fondly. So I do think that these things can exist in the microcosm of travel. Mm. And that was an amazing travel relationship with no expectation of continuation beyond the trip that we were taking together. Right, okay. But there was a part of you, part of you both, I imagine, that thought it could go on for longer than it did or or did it just naturally come to an end? I think that's the beautiful thing, Adam, is that once it was established that I wanted my life to continue in this direction and she wanted her life to continue in another direction, we basically established that a relationship long-term was impossible, right? but that we loved each other in the time that we had spent together and that we respected each other enough to let ourselves go in different directions. But it wasn't going to progress to a, a life story. It was just a love story for that particular moment in time. 
And that is heartbreaking. That is sad in some ways, but it encapsulates one of the aspects of a travel relationship, which is fundamentally possible. There have, of course, been times where I've met people, fallen in love with them and tried everything to keep those relationships alive long distance. That's a rather different issue entirely. Yeah, and I think you've mentioned the word story there. That's the operative word, because for me, it was exactly that. There was a, you know, there was a moment in, uh, I'm going to have to use the French term because it's incredibly appropriate for this story, but I was traveling around Vietnam. This is probably no more than about four or five weeks after the motorbike story that I just told. And I saw a, a French girl and it was love at first sight down in um, in the south of Vietnam. In French, they have the expression coup de foudre, which means like lightning bolt or like you're hit with a lightning strike. And it's the equivalent of love at first sight, right? And I just never experienced that feeling before. You know, I remember saying to myself, I've got to do whatever it takes to have this girl in my life. And it was, it was amazing. So, you know, I had my own plans. I was going to go and move to Australia after traveling around Southeast Asia or continuing to travel around Southeast Asia. And, but ultimately I had my eyes set on a life in Australia. She had her own plan. She was going to go back to China and then back to Europe. And then who knows what else after that. She was still sort of finishing up her studies. But we sacrificed everything for the relationship. So I changed my plans. I went back to Europe to be with her. She then changed her plans and we both moved to Australia together. And we ended up being together for four years, right? Now, I don't know whether that was the best thing to do, but I do know how I felt. And I think that's what's so incredible is that I was willing to do anything to make sure that that relationship kept going, even though we'd only met for a few weeks. Now, if I was able to remove myself from the situation and detach myself from my emotions, logistically, it was a nightmare, (laughs) that relationship. Like, there's just no way, like, objectively, that that should have happened. It should have been a, a fling for a couple of weeks, a lot of fun, some cool stories, and then, you know see you around, have a nice life kind of thing. But my goodness, the first two months were so tough. Yeah. So tough. Because you wanted to be with her so badly. And because we were in situations that caused sensitive discussions. Like for some of it, she was back in France with her family, but I had just moved to Melbourne and was living in a hostel. Right. So not only did the time difference cause enormous strain on the relationship it causes enormous strain on our relationship and we're not romantically linked (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah just keeping this podcast going on a regular basis is hard enough but a romantic relationship over the internet when the time difference is against you and i'm of course in a hostel in my mid-20s in melbourne i'm out partying i'm doing other bits and bobs and then i'm coming back at sort of five o'clock in the morning and then getting on a skype call with my girlfriend it was you know, it was on the other side of the world. It was a logistical nightmare. It was pretty tough mentally. And it's also the sort of sacrifice that you're willing to go through compounds the issue somewhat and puts an enormous amount of stress and strain and weight on, onto your shoulders because it was so fresh and exciting, yet so complicated that we kind of had conversations very early on about whether it was even worth it. And then we ended up being together for four years and, you know, it wasn't always great. And I'll hold my hands up and say that, but what a story, <laughs> you know, what, what an amazing story. What a story indeed. Just building on what you said and, and rounding off a few points, you said that it should have just been 
a four week thing and it ended up growing into this thing. But I think that's the crazy thing about love and relationships. There is no should. It's just how you feel at the time. Sometimes feelings force you to take action in very specific ways. Sometimes you have no choice but to fall burdened to the crazy emotions that you have that whip up around a specific individual. Sometimes the nature of love is that you feel like it's time to do anything for that person and try to make anything work. And I think that there's a romanticism around travel that creates a tinderbox for that sort of environment. I think it's important to bear in mind when you meet someone on the road and fall in love with them that travel, if travel isn't your life, then travel doesn't make an accurate representation of what life will be like with that person. Mm. There's been so many times where I've met people who have less experienced travelers than me and think like, oh, we could just do this together forever. But that's not what their life is. That's not what they've done in the past. So they don't understand all the crazy things that traveling together involves. And of course, it's inevitably much harder, much more complex than they initially thought. And likewise, when I've been stopped in a place, I've lived a life with people who aren't travellers and lived a non-nomadic lifestyle for a little bit. And I inevitably end up feeling like I crave my old life in some sort of way, despite being in love with the person and that existence. It's an incredibly complicated thing. It's a complicated issue. And travel obviously makes it that much harder. Yeah, I think that when you're traveling and you're in those sorts of um, bubbles, shall we say, you're living sort of almost detached from the real world and what your life would be like in the real world, if I can say that in inverted commas. So emotions are heightened, experiences are unusual, extraordinary. And, you know, you're meeting like-minded people and this is only going to exacerbate kind of the, the emotions that you're feeling and uh, the decisions that you make, maybe. I mean, it's, um, it's wonderful to think that it is absolutely possible to meet someone whilst you're travelling and then just continue a life back where maybe one of you lived. And I know people who have done that and it's still a success and, and that's a wonderful story. But um, you... you do have to sacrifice an awful lot if you're willing to make it work. And um, yeah, it's certainly not always easy, Al. But for long-term travellers, for tropologists, for perpetual itinerants and nomads, like travel is real life. So for them, the issue is compounded still. Like there isn't a real life, quote unquote, to go back to. <laughs> they live their lives on the road. So Maybe perhaps out there there's two tropologists that will meet in a hostel bunk bed and fall in love and just travel together forever. My final word to that listener would be, I think that there is a time and a space where two people can meet, fall in love, and that love exists only within the confines of the space that they found themselves traveling. And maybe the mature decision is to go, well, our lives are so different let that relationship remain this perfect little bubble in space and time. And then there's other times where people might meet traveling and find that their lives are suitable for each other beyond the realm of travel and that they can keep in touch. They can work it, do the tireless work to maintain a long distance thing and stay in love and end up, you know, having an enjoyable life together. And then there are other times where people fall in love and maybe just decide to keep on traveling together for a little bit. I think all of those things are possible. That's the problem, Al, is that a life of travel leads you to believe that anything is possible. So why would we think otherwise? And I think anything kind of is possible, Adam, from falling in love with the road and on the road to 
experiencing human kindness as the result of a tragic motorcycle accident? Will we ever really know what endless possibilities await us as we get on that plane and sojourn off into this planet? The only way we can stay informed about the whole thing is by following Tropology Podcast. Write to Tropology Podcast with all your questions. It's tropologypodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media at Tropology Podcast. If you think, well, I enjoyed this episode of Tropology, but what I would really like is to hear Adam and Alan, unedited, raw, saying what they really think about motorcycle crashes and falling in love on the road, then you can go to our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Tropology Podcast. We have a section on there called Lost and Found, where me and Adam drink water and get all crazy and relaxed. <laughs> there we are. That was this week's episode of Tropology. On next week's episode, we'll have a guest on Tropology. Hannah Teslin, experienced traveller, content creator, and someone who has an awful lot to say about long-term travel. I don't know about you, Adam, but the present is starting to feel like a right overbearing and oppressive load on my mind, and I would appreciate a quick dash off into the future. Will you come with me? As always, mate, I'm right by your side. Let's do it. Uh, We'll see you there on next week's episode of Tripology. Bye. 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 Ciao.